Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is videocast number 72, podcast episode 62 for the week ending March 5th, 2021. We've got a lot of great stuff to cover this week, so we'll get right down to it, starting with the media. As usual, I um, want to thank Liz Clayman and Ellie Terrett for having me on the Clayman Countdown on Monday. And the subject matter was actually, number one, uh, was talked about uh, Warren Buffett's massive uh, commitment to invest in utilities uh, that he outlined in his annual letter last week. But two, Liz asked me specifically about Bitcoin, which is probably my least favorite subject to talk about, but I was happy to do it on the show. Um, and we went into, it was related to a note that Citibank put out that said that we were at the tipping point with Bitcoin because of uh, the pros were that there was large institutional adoption and it could potentially lead to faster and cheaper uh, money movement with global trade. And they likened it to a digital gold to hedge inflation, which uh, the relationship has actually been tenuous if you look at the data. Uh, however, their concerns were that if uh, at, after COVID, as the economy gets back to normal, is that institutional interest going to cool when stimulus packages are no longer forthcoming? I mean, the one that we're going to talk about on this podcast video cast is probably the last one for some time. Um, and, uh, you know, if institutional interest uh, interest cools, what will happen is volatility will return, uh, making it nothing more than a speculative instrument and, and the uh, dream of it becoming a global currency with that much volatility is um, um, really unlikely. So uh, those were the pros and cons. And uh, my point to Liz was there's smart people on both sides. So first, you have Tim Draper, the venture capitalist. He, he had the best trade. It's probably one of the greatest trades. I don't know why they didn't write a book about it, but he bought 30,000 coins from the U.S. Marshal's office in a, gov in a government auction seized from the Silk Road, um, I guess, bankruptcy. And he bought 30,000 coins at 633 bucks. He spent uh, $19 million. It's now worth probably $1.5 billion. So there's no question. A lot of smart guy, people on both sides. Uh, Paul Tudor Jones put 1% of his net worth into Bitcoin. Elon Musk put $1.5 billion of uh, Tesla's money in. That's It's almost a double from my, my understanding. And MicroStrategy had been issuing debt to buy Bitcoin. Now that was Monday when they looked brilliant. The point that I made, uh, all, any and all companies related to Bitcoin, whether it's Tesla, MicroStrategy, um, Bitcoin, uh, GBTC, the ARK, A-R-K-K, which is a momentum ETF, uh, they're all down about 25 to 30% off their recent peaks now in the last week or two. So it looks less um, uh, sagacious. However... Um, the point that I really wanted to make was not a commentary on whether I think Bitcoin will go up or down. I was specifically interested as it relates to stocks and particularly companies who are making the bet with their balance sheet to take a portion of their cash and invest in Bitcoin. And the problem I pointed out is that when you do that as a board or as a CEO, what you are implicitly saying to the stockholder and to the stock market is that we believe that using this cash and investing it in Bitcoin will give us a better return than if we invest this money in our company, in growth, in acquisitions, or more importantly, in buying back our own stock. And if that's the case, as an investor, I'm only left with the very simple point, then why the hell would I own your stock? I'll just go buy Bitcoin. So I think that's a double-edged sword, and I think a lot of people are going to get bitten if they chase the fad to move some of their cash into Bitcoin. Um because of not because of whether it'll go up or down or whether it's a good trade or a good investment or store of value or currency or not but more importantly what the message is to the market and uh and I think that that message may have been heated 
well this week by the market's reaction. Uh, whether it's causal or coincident, it's immaterial. I think as this plays out over time, the result is going to be those who make that bet uh, with shareholder money are going to um, uh, be punished, number one. Or if Bitcoin really works, their stock is going to become nothing more than a proxy for Bitcoin. Uh, and again, that, that just goes back to this, the point, why the hell would I own your stock? I'll just buy Bitcoin. Um, okay, so that's all the smart side of the trade. The people that are against it, uh, you saw notes out. Dan Loeb is starting to uh, explore it. Uh, you know, he's trying to see both sides of the argument. Um, Warren Buffett ha has called it rat poison squared after his partner Munger called it rat poison. Uh, and uh, because it doesn't produce anything, he says it'll end badly. Now, here's the important point I wanted to get across, which, uh, which we talked about on the show. Buffett said he would not short it. He would not short any of the cryptocurrencies, but he would buy five-year puts on every single one of them. So in other words, a basket of long-dated puts against all the cryptocurrencies because he believes that they have no intrinsic value. And uh, on that, I agree with him fully. I, I think, number one, they could, they could certainly go a lot higher in the short term. Uh, I don't know. There's no basis to make an analysis on it other than you're guessing what percentage and what share of the gold market it can, it, it can get and whether it's, it has any equivalency. Um, and that's, that's a long debate. But I, I do like this because even if Bitcoin works, there'll be a lot of cryptocurrencies that don't. So as prime brokers start to offer um, uh, baskets, like they have knockout puts and different baskets that you can get with low implied volatility, I think that's going to be probably a really interesting setup trade in coming years. Um, Munger, Charlie Munger likened uh, Bitcoin to a fox hunt. It's the pursuit of the uneatable by the unspeakable. I thought that was well put. Ray Dalio said that uh, of Bridgewater that while the Bitcoin supply is limited, which is what the core argument is for it, um, uh, you know, new coins are have unlimited supply. So while Bitcoin itself might might be limited there's there's absolutely no end to the amount of new currencies and new fads and and new issues that can be put out whether it's dogecoin or ethereum etc and while they serve different purposes and they all have a different flavor the key fact is it's whether they have intrinsic value or not and if they don't have intrinsic value then the supply is unlimited and that's basically ray dalio's um, anti-argument and, and he also has some pro-arguments as well so you can google that Michael Burry of Big Short fame he says it's a speculative bubble and unless you understand how much leverage is embedded in the trade you have no right being in it and I think that's actually very important to understand the amount of margin that's in it and, and as it unwinds it can do so very very quickly uh, as we've seen with other um, extremes so uh, and then finally the most important opinion that I want to know about is Janet Yellen who said that it's difficult for transactions and it's used uh, explicitly in illicit finance. So that's concerning in terms of the re regulatory framework. Bulls would say, if we get a framework, then we know we're here for the long term. That may certainly be the case. We'll see. Um, but, uh, you know, my conclusion was it's, it certainly could go up in the short term. It could go up a lot. But I would definitely join B Buffett in a long-dated basket against you know, at least five or 10 of the cryptocurrencies in a basket, long dated puts, I think would be an incredible trade. Uh, but, you know, again, there are brilliant people on both sides of this and you have to keep an open mind. Uh, again, thanks to Ellie Terrett and Liz for having me on Monday. Enjoyed that quite a bit. Moving right along. Um, I want to say that um, a few things. Very interesting. While the NASDAQ is now down 9% off its recent highs, the S&P 500, which is the, the gauge that all professionals look at, is now down exactly uh, in that range that we've talked about. It's down 3% off its highs. The Dow is down only 2% off of its highs. The Dow Transports is down 1% off of its highs. So those, you know, what we said we were looking for is uh, four to five of these uh, 
mini pullbacks of three to four percent. We're right in that range now with the S&P off three percent. We did get a nice bounce today. We'll see if we get follow through. We're going to talk about it. But again, we are not interested in this stage after a 76 percent move up off the lows uh, of the general index indices. We're interested in the rallies under the surface, and we're going to drill down into that on this call again. Um, the other uh, point that I wanted to bring up as we move forward here is uh, this week was literally like manna from heaven. Uh, you know, the, the volatility, uh, as we noted in our article of the week, which we'll get into uh, in, in a few moments, that we had been aggressively laying into utilities, uh, big pharma and uh, consumer staples, and we gave six names last week, which we'll uh, which we'll talk about this week. Uh, it really was a gift from God, all the turmoil. And uh, Chair Powell, who basically said that he's going to keep the pedal to the metal. He wants the uh, economy to run hot. He wants to see inflation symmetrically above 2%. He's going to keep up with the bond biding. And the reason the market got a little sideways uh, and Treasury yields spiked is, you know, we just had a rate of change that which we discussed last week, which was almost you know, near historic and, and with long rates going up that quickly to while he acknowledged it, he did not say we have the tools to deal with it if it gets out of control. So he did not tip his hat that will consider Operation Twist or yield curve control uh, if it gets out of hand. And that's what the market was looking for on Thursday. It didn't get it. My sense is if yields don't cool down, um, although they did today, uh, by the March 17th meeting, the, there will be a run-up of speaker after speaker hitting the hitting the tape, saying that you know yield curve control is not something we're looking at right away, but it's something that we'll consider at the meeting, and we're you know we'll certainly discuss all possibilities if if uh, yields get too high, but we don't foresee that because we think inflation is transient. So they'll they'll say it's on the table, and all they need to do is that type of forward guidance, and it'll walk walk uh, long long yields down really quickly. It didn't get that Thursday. That's why it freaked out and it calmed right down. And I think the market at this stage may in, in effect calm down on its own without the jawboning, but know that if it gets out of hand, that jawboning's coming and you're going to have an instant reversal. So, um, but, but the opportunity that created was just historic and um, uh, it, it was, it was exciting. So uh, moving right along, why do I say that? Um, I thought this quote was appropriate for this week uh, from Warren Buffett. The stock market is a device for transfer for transferring money from the impatient to the patient. And we saw that last year with banks and energy when we were pounding the table on banks and energy and people were making fun of the banks and saying that, uh, what am I paying for, you know, uh, marble, marble desks and pens with chains on them, who needs them, they're toast, blah, blah, blah. And energy, you know, oh, no one could touch it with the 10-foot pole. It's, um, you know, dirty business. No one wants it. It's only 2% of the S&P. And now everyone's chasing like crazy. Why? Because... You know, people do what they do to survive, and all these energy companies have come out with their carbon neutral plans in the last two months to say by 2050 we'll be uh, uh, net zero, and uh, we're doing all this carbon capture. And now that the stocks are up 75 to 100 uh, percent, all the institutions are like, "Yeah, we could buy them now," you know, because they want to buy them. Now they have the excuse to buy them, and opinion follows trend. So we've covered that quite a bit over recent months. Opinion follows trend. Opinion follows trend. When they were down and out, you know, Wall Street is the only place in the world when there's a clearance sale, no one shows up, no one wanted them, everyone derided them, uh, you know, uh, my opinion was as unpopular as ever, and uh, and now it's become consensus after they're up 100%. So we're going to talk about some groups that uh, may have a similar opportunity that we saw with banks and energy last year, but happening right now, and we're gonna drill down on that. But before we do, let's just cover some key news, because last week we spent a lot of time on the Saudi Arabia Khashoggi report, and our uh, instinct, what that was causing a huge amount of selling, by the way, because uh, they are big holders of tech, uh, 500 billion of, of assets in the US capital markets. And by the way, that's probably, uh, um, 
part of what happened with treasuries in the last few weeks as there were threats that this report was going to be released and that there were inclinations that you might get the Magnitsky Act and they might freeze assets. So I think there was a lot of Saudi selling in uh, tech and in um, treasuries, which is evident in the market action and they're a major, major player. And, you know, I think the administration took that into account and made the prudent uh, move in terms of economic stability with the, you know, with the amount of trillions we've spent to bring the economy back from a once in a century uh, um, uh, tragedy um, uh, to, to rock the boat o over this would have been unwise. You can deal with it at some point in the future. But it was dealt with correctly. Uh, they uh, made a statement with the 76 visas or whatever they did and said it was a bad thing. And, and that's that's good. Uh, but they did not uh, freeze assets because that would have caused an absolute crash. Uh, and it was already starting. So so they, they pulled it back from the brink. I don't know who was guiding them, but they made the right call. And that was a home run. So uh, kudos to that. Moving right along, uh, so today we saw some some optimism about this 1.9 trillion coming through. Um, it's reflected not only in the bond market with yields rising, because how are we going to uh, finance it, but it's also reflected in the stock market because it's going to just be a boon to uh, earnings and sales and the stock market. It's estimated 170 billion of the 360 some odd billion of direct payments to individuals is going to go into the stock market. So that's a big deal. What's included in in this uh, package? $1,400 checks. I think that's the biggest that they've gotten in any package. I, um, it's $1,400 per person for for lower income households, uh, which which is you know that's a lot of money. It's like you know, six fifty six hundred, I guess, for a family of four. The last one was six hundred, and I think the first one was a uh, thousand or twelve hundred a person. So that's huge amount of money. The biggest stimulus at the point in time when it's least needed uh, in general. I mean, you know, um, employment uh, unemployment was down to six point two percent. So it's a bigger check at six point two percent than it was at fourteen point one percent. Um, that's, that's big. 160 billion for vaccinations, 350 billion will go to state aid to bail out the, the, uh, states, predominantly coastal states, uh, and pre-existing, uh, costs that they had related to pensions as well. Most of the states receiving stack tax aid actually have, um, higher revenues than they did before the pandemic, partially from, um, stock market gains and uh, other things that they didn't anticipate. Uh, so this will not be um, rescue. This will actually be purely stimulative because it's they they the tax receipts were much higher than they anticipated they would be. As I said, greater than pre-pandemic uh, for uh, 2020, uh, with the exception of a few travel states like uh, and oil. So Texas uh, revenues were down. Uh, they're against the stimulus, ironically, and uh, Florida uh, revenues were down because of tourism. Texas because of oil last year. If you remember, it was negative. Um, and when we were saying it's time to buy and, um, and Florida because of the, uh, the travel and the tourism business, which obviously took a hit. Although I, I didn't notice it when I was down in Tampa for the Super Bowl, but well, for the swim meets and we went to the Super Bowl, but, uh, uh, certainly they took a hit because you can see it in the, the, uh, flight numbers, uh, tax credits and childcare schools are going to get $170 billion to help them open. I think they got 160 already to open and a lot of them didn't, but this will be another 170 billion to, to uh, I guess, get the ones who didn't open to finally open. Airlines and airports, $14 billion and small business will get uh, $25 billion to help restaurants struggling from pandemic uh, lockdowns and uh, $1.5 25 billion for venue operators also includes 15 billion for economic injury disaster loans and 7.5 billion for forgivable loans in the paycheck protection program. Uh, more on Apple, another antitrust suit uh, coming from the United Kingdom this time over App Store rules. So that you know we've been saying this since August and September. This doesn't go away. It just the drum beats louder and louder and louder, and eventually it has an impact. 
on the numbers. So uh, we see that with Apple continually being under pressure since reporting perfect earnings down some 20-something some percent, I believe. Uh, okay, SPAC froth. A little heat came out of the SPACs finally. Um, the SPAC index plunged 20% in the last two weeks. We've talked about the pockets of froth in the market. Whether it's the high multiple low earning stocks, uh, tech stocks that are down now 30, 35% a pop, the SPACs are down 20%. Um, uh, you know, certainly pockets of cryptocurrency, which have started to come down a little bit. So that's that's healthy for the market. And some of these are probably now in in or near buy ranges. So I don't want to just be the constant like anti-tech. I'm certainly not. I mean, some of them are probably getting closer. But uh, we're going to focus on those that I think uh, I have a higher degree of confidence, those sectors and, and areas. Um, this was an article in Market Watch by Joy Wil Wiltermuth. She posted a table from Truest Wealth. And basically what they're saying is the market has upside because the average bull market since 1957 is 179%. We're only at 76%. And the average duration of a bull market since 1957 is 5.8 years. We're at 11 months, so that was nice to see. Atlanta Fed has their GDP now estimates. They were at 10% for Q1 plus 10%. They're now down to 8.3%. But um, if you recall in June when everyone was saying that we were going to 20% unemployment, I was saying we'd probably do 6% GDP in 2021. Now there are credible people like Ed Hyman out of ISI, I, uh, well, I don't know, his new firm, I think is Evercore, yeah, Evercore ISI, he sold to them a number of years back, but he's one of the best in the business, and he's talking 8% real, 2% inflation, 10% nominal GDP this year, um, uh, Ed Yardeni is in that ballpark, 7-8% uh, plus inflation, so 8-9% uh, nominal, and so we, you know, we were the highest uh, out there six months ago. Now we're now we're probably the lowest, and that's a good thing for everyone uh, moving right along. So, uh, what's next for the markets after Fed Powell's signals he's not riding to the rescue just yet? We covered a lot of that. If it gets out of out of hand, they, you'll you'll see the headlines start to hit. James Bullard was out on the tape today saying that. Yield curve control is, uh, or operation twist is not on the table at present. That's basically the uh, functional equivalent of saying, don't think of a large pink elephant in your living room. Whatever you do, don't think of a large pink elephant in your living room. <laughs> you know, by acknowledging it tells me that it's it's in the lexicon of thought, uh, uh, and uh, and and soon to be speaking in coming weeks, and that will uh, moderate this uh, rapid steepening. And uh, and reduce the rate of change and, and kind of level it out. This is what the 10-year yield looked like uh, right after Powell spoke. And he didn't say the magic two words, Operation Twist. Uh, and um, these are some uh, vaccine data, which is pretty exciting to see. The United States, as of yesterday, has administered 82.57 million vaccinations. That includes the one shots and the two shots which is approximately 16.2% uh, of the population has received at least one vaccine dose. Dose, so 16 times 300, you know, four, it's about 50 million, probably another 50 million have antibodies, so that's 100. You probably need to get to uh, 150 or 180 before the cases just absolutely collapse, although, they are collapsing, uh, and that fear of a spike the other week, that was due to, um, uh, someone explained it, I think it was a holiday, but long story short is the seven-day moving average rolled back over, cases are rolling back over, deaths are rolling back over, everything's moving in the right direction. Okay, now, last year we were pounding the table on banks and energy and towards the end of the year defense stocks. So I, I'm going to point this out because I'm going to contrast it to what we're talking about in the last week, which is utilities, uh, big pharma, and um, uh, consumer staples. So here's what they look like. These are weekly charts for the banks. These are the bigger banks. So as you can see, they've got nothing but up. Nothing but up. The big banks, Bank of America, nothing but up. Wells Fargo's now up uh, 
almost 100% off its low uh, from just over 20 bucks to just under 38. Citibank, nothing but up. JP Morgan, new all-time highs. Uh, and so on. So, so this trade's working, and yeah, it may breathe in the short term. These have had monster moves, but the trend is is up over over time. This is a new business cycle. Uh, CNI uh, demand is going to pick up, and um, uh, everything's going to pick up. Basically, you got 85 million millennials starting housing formation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is energy. We were pounding the table all last year. Now they've gone nothing but up, particularly in the last four or five months. It's literally been parabolic straight up. And as you can see, they've got tremendous room to go. Are they due for a breather? Probably, you know, probably. But I mean, if if you're thinking about the next two, three months, if you're thinking about the next two, three years, it's, it's really just getting started. There are a number of reasons for that. Um, it's a new administration. Number one, they uh, are not energy friendly, so they've stopped drilling on federal lands. Um, they're going to make it harder and harder to for the U.S. producers. So the shift balance of power is shifted from the U.S. as the swing producer to uh, back to OPEC. And we saw that this week with um, um WTI trading up over 65, Brent over 68. We talked about that six months ago when it was at 30 and even below. And um, we said it would be at 60 to 70 within the next year or two. It's done it in nine months. Um, we said we'd see three to four dollars at the tank. I just paid 396 for premium today. Uh, so, you know, it's happening faster than anticipated. And um, and that's because the power is now back in the hands of um, uh, OPEC. We saw that yesterday. They said we're not re reducing the cuts. Why? Because they don't have to. Um, it's, uh, it's a different relationship. They can do whatever they want. And within the next year to two years, we'll be importing oil from the Middle East, again, based on this administration's policies. And um, and that's that. So that's the bad news. The good news is, is it's going to accelerate the transfer to greener energy, which is probably part of the plan. At some point when people start paying four and five dollars at the pump two, three years out and oils back at, you know, 75, 80, 85 dollars, which I, I wasn't even thinking about last year when I said 60 to 70 um then people will say well this you know it probably makes more sense for me to buy an electric car provided their uh electric costs are still cheap if if natural gas stays subdued which is actually questionable because gas is a derivative of of oil production and uh albeit we do have marcellus and haynesville that have you know pretty massive supplies but uh i'm sure the administration is not going to make it as easy it has as it has been historically which uh increased regulation and oversight will increase costs and and uh so those electric cars are going to be more expensive to charge in the vast majority of the country that uh, would not be able to charge exclusively from uh, solar and a battery uh, in the non-sunbelt -sun states where the vast majority of the population resides although that's changing. Um, moving right along, big oil friends the carbon tax. It's ironic, better lucky than good. We talked about that last week or the week before. And um, so they're doing it. Why are they doing it? Number one, they have no choice. Number two, uh, now they can re-attract, um, that's not a word, but attract uh, institutional money, once again, institutions wanted an excuse to get back in, as they always do after it's up 75 to 100%. They now have it. They have the carbon neutral plans by 2050, and now they have to say, well, there's a carbon tax. So by us supporting them, it's creating more taxes that are going to go into green renewables. So uh, circular logic, but everyone signs off and everyone's happy and the stocks go up. Moving right along, here's a chart from Macro Charts. He talks about the uh, last three energy rallies, and he shows how you know you rallied massively off the bottom, and then you go through this sideways consolidation before you get the next big, huge moves. That may or may not be the case, but uh, you know we have moved a lot. A lot of these stocks are up over 100% in four months, so uh, you may get this sideways chop, and that'll be an opportunity for the longer term. Um, Okay, next we had, uh, okay, these are defense stocks, which we really started pounding the table on late last year and early this year. As you can see, uh, and, you know, and, uh, and we've continued to say we're adding on weakness, a number of these, you know, are near making new highs. They've rallied like crazy. Some of them are just taking off, and some of them are still cheap. Uh, even though the ETFs and the indices have really started taking off. And that's where we've focused our energy. 
And Mikhail from Israel sent me another Ask Me Anything question this week. He said, hi, Tom, thank you for your podcast and recent insight into Saudi relations, as well as the advice on undervalued stocks. Uh, it's not advice, it's opinion. See terms on hedgefundtips.com. Uh, it's, uh, okay. So let's see. Uh, okay, it's always great to hear your thoughts. I was wondering if you think Lockheed Martin is a good buy point now. It is currently trading at low valuations, PE, enterprise value to EBITDA, etc., and has a very solid track history of increasing revenue, earnings, and dividends. Also, as many of the defense and aerospace companies have grown in, uh, in share price, Lockheed Martin looks like one of the few falling behind. Thank you, and looking forward to your next podcast. Mikhail, and Mikhail is from Israel. Uh, thank you for that great question. I think you could just see it right here. Absolutely, I'd be buying the laggards. I'd buy, uh, Lockheed Martin was actually an idea. Uh, you know, you can get all the exposure through uh, an ETF, like an ITA, XER, XAR, or um, uh, DFEN, which is the levered one, but you got to be careful with that. We covered that quite a bit last week, so we're not going to go back into. But you look at Boeing, you look at Raytheon, you look at Lockheed Martin for sure, not Northrop Grumman for sure. Um, and you know, we we own all these either through ETFs or directly. Uh, quite a few of these, and we love these for the long term. So I I think that some of these are very much like banks and energy were four four to six months ago. I think they're just generational buys here, in my opinion, in my view. And, you know, I'm putting my money where my mouth is. So that's that. Uh, great question, Mikhail. Thanks for sending that. Anyone who hasn't asked me anything, you can always email it to info at hedgefundtips.com. Uh, the other thing that I've been talking about is geopolitical uh, tensions increasing. Most of these stories uh, flare up and they die out in like 10 minutes. But the fact is they're happening. Uh, this one I just caught in the Wall Street Journal. I mean, I have the TVs on all day. I, I didn't hear one peep about this. But on, uh, I guess it was March 3rd, so that would have been two days ago, it said, rockets hit Iraq base hosting U.S. troops amid tension with Iran. I think under any other administration, that would be like, should we go to war? Shouldn't we go to war? You know, so I don't know. I mean, that sounds pretty serious. The point is, whether it leads to big things or not, it should draw attention to the cheap valuations on some of these defense stocks. And, um, you know, all you need is a catalyst to shift attention, changes the narrative, and they take off. So uh, these are the type of things that I keep my eye on. Now, we've been pounding the table. Last week, we, we really laid out the case for utilities, um, big pharma, and consumer staples. And it looks like they're starting to bottom. Some of these things are up 5 and 10% in the last couple of days. So it's exciting to see that they're actually turning hard now. Uh, here's uh, Eversource, XEL, uh, Dominion, which we have, um, WEC, DTE. I mean, these things are turning hard off of bottoms. I mean, they were sold and left for dead. And, you know, like, like Banks and Energy last week, we're talking utilities. Like, I haven't heard the word utilities on any of the major stations in like a year and a half. So, and I, I would have thought that you'd start to hear it, you know, today or something with them starting to, to move in the last couple of days. Nope, AEP, that's our favorite. Although, uh, two things. Number one, Jim Cramer covered AEP last night. He had the CEO on, which was an awesome segment, which I was really excited because that's our largest... Um, um, utility position. And this was a gift from God. As I said, manna from heaven this week, we were just leaning in. We leaned in so aggressively to this. Like it hasn't been this aggressive since, you know, Wells Fargo was in the low to mid twenties. Uh, Exxon was, you know, 25 points lower. So, so we like these, we like this group and, uh, we go, we, we refer you back to Warren Buffett. The stock market is a device for transferring money from the impatient to the patient. So, you know, some people bought a week ago and they went down and rather than adding because they have this brain damaged idea that, you know, cut your losses overnight. If you don't own, know what you own and you're a gambler, then, you know, that's fine. But I never enter a hundred, you know, I rarely enter a position a hundred percent in one day or exit a position a hundred percent in one day. I scale in and I scale out. 
And uh, I think most professionals managing money do the exact same thing. So I think this is a tremendous opportunity. Uh, um, it's sniffing out, I think, that the rate of change in bond yields is going to slow now. If the market doesn't do it, the jawboning will. Yesterday was kind of the last hurrah of, um, you know, why aren't they coming to the rescue? And now the market's kind of over it. And these things are really starting. Some of these are hitting hard, you know, the five, seven, eight percent in a couple of days. This was the big article in Barron's, which was like three days right after we did this huge layout of utilities, which was exciting to see. It was the cover story, 12 stocks and funds to play for the coming green boom for utilities. Uh, great stuff there. And then this is the consumer staples, although this is not a perfect thing. But, um, you know, Clorox, huge bounce today, up 3.4%. Um, Brown Foreman is a liquor company. Uh, Mondelez, huge bounce. Hershey, huge bounce. Kellogg, monster bounce in the last two days. From, uh, so that's good to see. Uh, Kimberly Clark, these are cut off actually, but you can Google them, yourself, uh, look them up yourself. Um, uh, Church and Dwight, big bounce today, 2.5%. Uh, Constellation Brands, uh, General Mills, cereal. Uh, Campbell Soup, where are you? Campbell Soup, are you on page two? Where are you? A Pepsi huge bounce. So the consumer staples, again, they were left for dead, thrown out with the bathwater. Why? Because rates were rising and risk was on. Now the market is shifting. And I think this is a great opportunity, these three groups. So let's see uh, what else, if we got any more here. D Dollar Tree. Okay, yeah. Colgate big bounce the last uh, two days. Um, Schmuckers, Campbell's Soups is bottoming here in our view. Uh, Coca-Cola, all these left for dead when rates rise are now getting bid. We'll see if we get follow through. But again, the secret here is the stock market is a device for transferring money from the impatient to the patient. So while uh, most people, if these go down next week, they're going to puke them out if they own them. Uh, we are going to add to them. I, I don't, I don't, my sense is that I'm not going to get another opportunity like we got this week, which is why I lean the hell into it like crazy. Uh, but if we do, I will add at the margins and um, and just, you know, suck it out as we did with banks and, and energy and, it, and it'll pay off over time uh, in our view. So that's that. We covered utilities, big pharma and oh, here's big pharma. So these again, they look exactly the same. They, why? Because they're defensive. So we had the speculative mania with uh Companies trading at 30 to 100 times sales and no earnings, big big on, as we said on Liz's show last week, big on promises, small on profits. Those things, that gig is up. They're down 30% uh, on, on average, those type of companies. And now these companies are getting bid, companies that actually make money and pay a dividend. And uh, and you're seeing them start to bounce. This is a, a Spanish uh, um, Grifolis. You've got uh, Biogen bouncing. You've got Gilead, which is biotech, actually. You've got Merck just starting to get a bounce. Uh, AstraZeneca, uh, Bristol Myers, and these are the type of fakeouts. So Bristol Myers got this jump up to 63, and then it rolled back over. It shakes out the new money that that don't believe it, and now it'll now it can go. And then when it gets up to 66 or 68 dollars, when everyone's saying pharma's the way to go, look at the dividend yield relative to the 10-year yield because the 10-year yield will moderate. And then they, they all, and that's when you can start to lay off some and then ride the rest uh, on the house. So it was nice to see even Pfizer started to get a bid in the last few days, which is which is good to see. So that thesis is just starting. Uh, here's a note from uh, Pfizer vaccine curbs COVID transmissions in Israel by nearly 90%. I think that's the only one way they have data so far that after you're vaccinated, you can't transmit. Here's the 10-year yield. Um as I said, so it spiked up and it actually normalized out today after hitting, I think, 160. It went to 1.60 or 160 bips. It uh, finished the day around 155. So it backed off. Let's see if that continues. If so, those three groups are really going to get bid. Um, and here we are on the article of the week, which was the... Diana Ross upside down stock market and sentiment results. I think this is adequately described. You can listen a little bit here. I said upside down, you're me. You're 
All right, if I don't stop, I'm going to get carried away, and we're going to listen to that for the rest of the podcast. But uh, anyway, she's great, and I think it adequately describes <clears throat> what we've been dealing with because you know, upside down is paying a hundred times sales and thinking it makes sense when you're, someone said today, it was very clever. When, when your market cap is the size of your total addressable market, you may be overvalued. <laughs> you know, I think there was a comedian that used to do a whole series of uh, things, you know, when this is that, you, you know, so, but, but I would say that that's definitely the case with some of these IPOs that have come out at 30 and a hundred times sales that are, you know, uh, approaching their their TAM, which is the scam for saying that. Well, if you know, if there were, if there are six billion people and we sell them each ten dollars each, you know, we're going to make sixty billion dollars a month. It's going to be incredible. But you know, obviously, uh, the share of what they can capture is substantially smaller than the TAM, and the TAMs are usually dramatically overrated. And by the time the TAM would be in view, there's competition and new ways of doing things. The, the long story sh short is excluding the last 10 years uh, when you had anemic growth effectively and rates were pinned to zero, uh, buying companies on average at 10 times sales is a guaranteed uh, formula for failure. Uh, the last 10 years was a, an exception. It wasn't a meaningful exception, but it, it did outperform. And I think that gig is up as uh, rates normalize, uh, not overnight, I think over time, and I, nor do I think they're going uh, dramatically high, but they'll be higher than they have been. And that favors um, a, a, a better blend with some value in cyclicals. And not to say that these quasi-monopolies won't perform like the fangs. They will perform. These businesses, the high-quality ones, will grow. The ones that are overvalued will just come back to normal valuations, but their underlying businesses will grow. I mean, Amazon in uh, 2001 to 2003, I think it lost like 87 to 93% of its market value, something in that range from the 2000 peak. 87 to 93% of the stock uh, a crash. And the underlying fundamentals of the business kept growing every single quarter through that period, despite the fact the valuation came down, you know, whatever it was, 90%. So I think you're going to see that. There are good businesses. Just because they're overvalued doesn't mean they're not going to be great companies and franchises. It's just the market's going to re-rate them. And, uh, and you may be seeing the first uh, inclinations of that um, in, in recent weeks. So, um, so that's what we talk about upside down. Um, We've constantly uh, emphasized since late January, since the GameStop thing, that Apple was the key to the market because um, those type of unwindings, funds that blow up and get redemptions, they uh, that doesn't happen in 24 hours. And we're seeing that uh, this has continued. Apple and Fang continue to be a source of funds to meet redemptions and in some case, complete fund wind downs. It's a classic case of selling your winners to pay for your losers. And I think you also had Saudi pressure on Fang and on treasuries in recent weeks leading into that report. Because if you recall, it was out on February 11th and then it was released to the public um, uh, late last week. And fortunately, they they decided against a nuclear war, which would have a nuclear war, which would be freezing assets, which would have caused them to just dump all their assets to to raise cash and get it out of our country. So um, so that was promising. And then you've got the uh, high high on uh, promises, low on profits companies. Uh, DoorDash was down 35% in the last couple of weeks. Uh, CRISPR was down 32%. Uh, Teladoc was down 32%. Uh, you know, the Teslas, the, the Churchills, uh, the Lucids, the ARC, etc. Um, all the momentum stuff was down. And at the same time, what's been working is banks have outpaced tech shares by almost 50% in the last six months. Um, what's been working, you know, Wells, ExxonMobil, energy banks, etc., and also those companies that have leveraged balance sheets that, that outperform uh, due to their economic sensitivity when GDP grows fast off of a low base. These are the groups that outperform your energies, your banks, etc., and this shows you the Russell uh, 1000 value versus growth. As you can see, it bottomed the end of August, and it's been trending up ever since, uh, so that's been positive. And so that's what has and has not worked. Now the question is what could work next? 
And uh, two week, not this week, but the week before, we talked with on Fox Business about the rate of change, and we we thought that that would slow in coming weeks. It has slowed, but it's still you know worrisome for the market. So you basically got up to 151 bips. You took a breather down to 140. Then you shot up on Powell's comments up to 160, uh, and now you're back down to 155. So it looks like we're kind of trying to build some consolidation here sideways and slow that huge rate of change in the last three weeks from you know 100 basis points to 160 you know 60 percent move uh and uh and that should slow and if it doesn't do it on its own expect the jawboning about twist and yield curve control and that'll keep it going sideways for a little bit and that's what's going to help staples big pharma and utilities and the demand for their high yielding stocks and profits in a you know rising rate environment either uh so we covered that this shows the 210 yield ratio ratio of two-year yield to 10-year yield as you can see uh when it goes below one uh that's an inverted curve it presages a recession and then you get a market crash this green line is financials we've covered this chart quite a bit but for the new people then the fed steepens the yield curve and that's how you come out of recession financials take off for four or five years same thing happened 2007 you inverted 2008 you got the recession fed steepens the yield curve just pronounced steepening right here and then the rate of change becomes untenable and uh, that's when they instituted a operation twist in uh, september 21st 2011 as you can see it was you know while you'd had a rally in financials beforehand it was the beginning of the major rally that lasted for three years same things happening now you've had this huge steep you had the inversion we had the recession last year you've had the huge steepening of the yield curve and now this rate of change has got to to level out here uh, we're pro potentially at the steepest part of the cycle, but that doesn't mean we're at the end of the financials rally. It means we could be near the beginning of the second leg and um, and financials could just flourish from here uh, with or without an operation twist. But my guess is you'll hear some some jawboning about it in coming weeks. And um, and maybe we'll put a purple line here <laughs> in four or five weeks. Who knows? Uh Okay, the other thing that's interesting about uh, after Operation Twist, these are three charts from 2011, September 21st, remember it happened, and what happened, sta uh, consumer staples took off, um, pharmaceuticals took off, and utilities took off after Operation Twist. So that was that, covered the Fox business. And then this week, the uh, sentiment data came down a little bit, but it's still extreme, 40% uh, bullish on the retail, 25% bearish. So that'll come down over time. And I think that's where we're going to see that rotation under the surface where more money moves into defensive as the sentiment comes down, utilities, staples, and uh, big pharma. And some healthcare insurers, health insurers have taken off as well. Um, fear and greed was at uh, neutral reading and the National Association of Active Investment Managers actually dropped down to 65. So they're underweight equities, which is why you saw them panic chasing at the end of the day today. So uh, that was that. Our message for the week has been the same. We'll continue to add to defense and aerospace on any weakness. Uh, and that's speaking to Macau. It's those names that have lagged. We're not buying up. We're, we're buying what's still cheap. Uh, and we're, uh, and then what was new from last week was we're building up selective positions in consumer staples, utilities, and big pharma. We wrote this article Thursday and we said we have added aggressively all week and we added aggressively that day as well. And a little bit this morning. So, um, where, where there was capacity and, and we'll continue to do that if we get another opportunity. I don't think we're going to get a whole lot more opportunity, but if we do great, um, remember, pay less attention to general indices as there's many crosswinds at present, press, present and more attention to take advantage of the rallies under the surface. So while Diana Ross may have felt things were upside down round and round, we can see things are acting rationally for this part of the cycle. Cyclicals outperformed the first 18 months. And what was last in 2020 is now first in 2021. Uh, we, we said that in a number of podcasts and articles last year, What what uh, the last shall be first and the first shall be last, and that's showing up. Now we're seeing a lot of unusual option activity this week and insider buying in utilities and in 
Pharma. This was a, nine, a million dollar purchase by the president and the CEO of Dominion Energy yesterday. I was probably buying right alongside him for all I know, um, but uh, that was good to see. Uh, Centerpoint Energy is another utility, and uh, this is Leslie Biddle. She's a director, and she bought about a million dollars, $992,000 of Centerpoint a few days ago. Uh, so that's nice to see. Uh, Merck, some unusual call option, long-dated call option activity, and PG&E, which is a battered utility in California. This was a huge, huge buy, 19,817 contracts. Um at $15 for December 2021. So they're making a huge bet. Uh, they've come out of bankruptcy. Big uh, players, Dan Loeb, it's one of his top positions, actually. This thing is really cheap. It's down from 70 bucks. It's like 12 or 13. Obviously, high risk, high reward. Um, but the, that's kind of interesting to see that size of a print uh, in the utility space. Uh, travel's picking up. You're seeing more and more days over a million passenger throughput. Obviously, still down. You know, some uh, yesterday's still down some 40% year on year, but uh, it's trending in the right direction. A lot more million day, million person day clusters. Earnings by sector. We did uh, real estate uh, REITs this week. The cumulative 2021 earnings power of the top 30 stocks was revised down by 1% in the last 60 days. Defense and aerospace, the top 30 was revised up 64 basis points in the last 60 days. So their cumulative earnings power has gone up. And utilities, uh, the top 27 weights uh, was revised down less than a percent in the last 60 days. But they're trading like they've been revised down 20%, in which they haven't. And, and hence, I think that's the opportunity uh, or part of it. Uh, overall S&P earnings, they had been flatlining for a few weeks. They went up again this week to $201 for 2022, 174.48 for 2021. I think that's flattish, but uh, it's resumed the uptrend, so that's very positive to see. And finally, the um, economic data, uh, great numbers today. Non-farm payrolls increased by 379,000 versus 182,000 estimated, 166,000 last print. Labor participation rate is flat at 61.4. <laughs> they were getting that cranking before the um, uh, COVID, and I, you know, I think that could get up to 65 if if, uh, if we don't screw it up with the wrong policies, and that would just be like a boom like we haven't seen since the, since the 50s. Um, so that that was exciting to see the unemployment ticked down from 63 to 62 and uh average hourly uh average weekly hours ticked down that's not good keep an eye on that um and let's see factory orders were up yesterday continuing jobless claims ticked down again very positive initial jobless claims were good um, it was good to see the continuing come down because last week that spiked up. That was a little worrisome. So, so this is all positive stuff. Uh, huge draw in gasoline, but you had a build in uh, crude oil inventories that was bearish. I think that's obviously obviously partially related to Texas and some build up there. Uh, but OPEC took care of it anyway, so that was positive to see. ISM, non-manufacturing PMI missed expectations. That was not positive. Services beat expectations. Uh, market composite PMI beat expectations. Um, and then you had the API confirmed the, it was confirmed by the uh, IEA. Uh, ISM manufacturing PMI did beat expectations. That was positive on Monday, came in at 60.8 versus 58.8. So that's very positive. And uh, construction spending was up. Manufacturing PMI was up. So on balance, the economic numbers were good this week. And um, things are moving forward. So just wanted to reemphasize how we're thinking about the market. What's under the surface? Where are the opportunities? Uh, thank you for listening in. We're going to be back next week. Same time, same place. Make it a great one.